Right. This is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Amritha Nandakumar, who is the President at Vidant Asset Management. Amritha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sumit. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. And, you know, I'd love it if we can just start off at the top and have you talk a little bit about Biden, right? How did the firm start and what do you do? Yeah, Biden Asset Management, there's so much that I can tell you about us, but I'll just, I'll just start. I'll make it easy. I'll say you know, our tagline is activating ideas, unlocking exposure. And what that's meant to capture is the experience and passion of our team to partnering with our clients to understand the kind of investment exposures that they want to provide to their clients, be it active managers, financial advisors, institutions, or someone else. And we bring it to life in an investment vehicle. So the, t- the timing of our conversation is actually really exciting for us because we're actually going to be celebrating our 10-year firm anniversary next week. So to us, that's that's 10 years of Biden's expertise, creativity, and our flexibility in bringing our clients' investment ideas to life, you know, whether it's an index strategy, an ETF, an SMA platform, or something else. Give you a bit of a history lesson on us. Yeah, so we, absolutely. We actually, and, and congratulations yeah. on 10 years. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. We're really excited. So that 10 years has been quite a journey for us because unlike some firms, we didn't just we didn't actually start off as an issuer. We actually started off as an index provider. And to be fair, we did quickly become an ETF issuer after that. Uh, but but really, the, the start of the firm was was we found that we needed to design our own debt indexes because we just couldn't find anyone out there who was flexible enough to design our vision into an index. And so we eventually did launch our own ETFs tracking these indexes because we believe there was nothing else out there like the methodologies that we had designed and nothing else like this available to investors. And, you know, we're fortunate to be able to say that our beliefs have been validated because we've raised almost a billion and a half in assets in those four ETFs. Our core business has evolved so much since those early days. Uh, in 2014, we hired Denise Crisco, my predecessor, a longtime ETF industry veteran, uh, to develop portfolio management and trading capabilities for Biden. So if you are someone that ever spent time with Denise, then you know that she was able to design a best-in-class team uh, that started off managing the Biden ETFs. Uh, but given her reputation and her Rolodex, it wasn't too long before other issuers and prospective issuers started calling her and asking her, you know, can you can you manage our ETFs too? Could you be our our sub advisor, or in other words, our outsourced portfolio management and trading partner? And and so in some ways, I I give her credit for almost creating. Uh, this this service or, or creating the opportunity uh, for issuers to be able to outsource these core functions uh, to a firm like Biden. And I can certainly talk about that more in a bit. Uh, but this is now our largest business line in terms of clients and assets. And so through our ability to partner with all different types of issuers uh, in, the, in the history of our firm, we brought well over 130 ETFs to market. Our newest and fastest growing business line uh, is actually SMAs, separately managed accounts. And again, similar to our outsourced ETF business, these aren't necessarily Biden's own design strategies, but rather 
us partnering with wealth management firms and large RAs that are looking to package their own proprietary or customized investment strategies and put them into an SMA platform that they can fully white label. And so through through what we do, we we try to make it again very customizable. We build your strategies for you, whether it's indexes or active, and then they can add on additional services and capabilities, you know, direct indexing, proxy voting, or even corporate engagement. On our side, we currently offer both equity and fixed income capabilities, and our growth on that side has, you know, been consistent with what we've all been seeing in terms of overall industry trends. And then finally, I would say our most our nascent business line, uh, which in some ways is is almost our our oldest in that it's how the firm started, and that is our data and portfolio design services. Our ability to customize data sets. Uh, to design active portfolios, to design indexes, and and really be an outsourced product development partner, it, it's it's in, it's how our firm really started. If you go back to the beginning, that we we designed our own indexes, um, and and so our ability to do this has really been the foundation of of every single Vidant investment product or service. It sounds like you do offer potential issuers a lot of capabilities. But before we jumped on this podcast, we were talking, and I know you mentioned that. You know, there's a bit of overlap between the sub-advisory type of services that Viden offers and what some of those white label issuers offer. We hear a lot from the white label issuers. Can you talk about, you know, maybe the pros and cons of the two approaches? Yes, absolutely. I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions on this side of the of the ETF industry, right? So if you're one of the largest issuers, you know, places that I've worked, such as Vanguard or VanEck, almost all of those functions, all the functions required to manage an ETF are internalized. But if you don't have that internalized, that's not to say that you can't launch your own ETF. And in fact, that's what's been so gratifying for me to be on this side of the ETF industry after spending my whole career at these large issuers, to be on this side of the ETF ecosystem, to see that there's this whole consortium of firms, of very knowledgeable firms with specific functional expertise that can partner with issuers and aspiring issues issuers and bring their ETFs to market. And so we, we consider ourselves, ourselves among one of those firms. A, a prospective issuer, they can outsource portfolio management and trading to, to a firm like ours. They can outsource compliance, legal, marketing, a number of different functions. For a prospective issuer, someone who is in, who is not planning to uh, hire their own portfolio managers, traders, ops folks, capital market specialists. They're not planning on investing in their own, you know, trading and operational platform. One of the decisions that you'll find yourself making is, well, do I go with the sub advisor or do I go with a white label partner? And the reason to go this route is that it doesn't require as much capital up front and you're not making as much of a commitment in terms of hiring headcount, in terms of investing in very expensive resources and very expensive technical capabilities. Instead, you can outsource to firms that have been doing this for a long time, uh, that have really strong teams that have, have worked with numbers of issuers before. And, and I'm certainly talking about us, but the truth is, you know, there's a lot of great firms out there uh, that are doing this. So to answer your question, with a firm like ours, we're called a sub-advisor in that that's how we're described in the fund's prospectus and SAI. So we're sub-advisor to the fund in that the sponsor of the fund hires us to provide services to the fund. 
in the case of a firm like Biden and some of our competitors out there, um, you're hiring our portfolio managers to implement your strategy, whether it's an index or uh, an active strategy. We're, we're literally trading the assets for you, right? So we're working with the custodian, we're working with the fund accountants, um, we're ensuring that NAV is being struck, that it's correct, we're ensuring that all the securities are traded, that they settle, and that we're tracking the issuers or the sponsor's portfolio, again, could be active or indexed. Uh, we're also doing all of the back office in terms of operations and working with all of the fund's partners, um, ensuring that the fund is operating the way it needs to. And then finally, we are providing capital market support because, again, for a lot of issuers, even, even the largest ones, you don't necessarily need to hire a capital markets person if you're working with a firm like ours because you know, we work with every ETF broker out there. It's uh, very rare um, that there's somebody out there that we're not trading with. And so, you know, we may not be a household name, you know, in financial services or even in the ETF industry yet, but we're definitely a household name when it comes to ETF brokers. It's it's very easy to ask around about us and and hopefully they'll tell you that, yeah, those Biden guys, they know what they're doing and they're they're really great to work with. That's what we offer. Another business model is the white label model, in which case uh, a prospective issuer is, is really outsourcing almost all the responsibilities to somebody else. And so th there are different ways to do this, but the way that we often see it is that somebody is licensing their, their active strategy or their index to the fund. So they eventually, they're essentially a, a licensee. Um, and so the the true uh, sponsor or what, you know, in 40 Act, we call it uh, investment advisor, the investment advisor of the fund um, would be that that white label firm that you're hiring. And so the benefit of that, of course, is that uh, as an issuer, you might only have to deal with one point of contact and you're getting your strategy out there in an ETF wrapper. And if that's your goal, that that's certainly a great, you know, great way to do it. It's certainly efficient. On the other hand, uh, and this is where we tell people, you know, really understand what you're signing up for here. You might be giving up a lot um, in terms of autonomy, in terms of decision-making authority for the fund, you know, how the fund is marketed, how it's sold, how it's priced, um, to, to what distribution channels is the, is the fund really being targeted. Um, you might even be giving up uh, certain decisions in terms of, of how the fund is actually being managed. And certainly, um, from an economics perspective, if you're if you're not really doing all of the work behind the fund, then it's it 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 stands to follow that you wouldn't necessarily be earning the bulk of the economics as well. You know, that's not the model that we offer. We personally believe that the sponsor should be the investment advisor and should should maintain as much autonomy and economics as possible. But the truth is that that may not be the right business model or or the the right path for for every issuer. And so that's why you know that's why that's why the ETF industry is such exciting place is because there are so many options out there. Um, and the passing of, of the ETF rules, just like Matt Barry talked about last week, uh, lowering the barriers to entry, making it possible for so many new entrants to, to come and, and launch their own products. Um, it, it just makes it, I think, that much better that there are a proliferation of, of options and partners out there. That's great. That's great. Uh, I recently heard from one white label issuer and they were talking about how the cost of launching a new ETF just keeps dropping. They said something like $25 million in assets under management, you could get an ETF to break even. Are, are the economics similar going the sub-advisor route? It is, yes, especially uh, because if you're hiring a white label, you would be outsourcing portfolio management and trading anyway. Uh, we're just one piece of that. Our, our belief is that 
while we can offer white label services, we're certainly set up to, to offer it. In some cases, we just, we just choose not to. Um, and so from an economics perspective, we end up being competitive uh, with white label issuers in, in, in that, you know, to, to, to whoever you spoke with, I, I think they're absolutely right. You know, the benefits of fee compression um, to, the, to the investor have also in some ways um, been also sent over to the issuer. What I, what I find is as we're talking to prospects that are considering to, whether to work with us or work with our competitors on the white label side, economics don't usually end up being the consideration because whether you hire one white label provider or you do a curated set of who you think are the best in class uh, partners out there, the economics really don't end up being the determining factor. It's really what model makes sense for you, what are you willing to give up, and what are the benefits that you really want to hang on to. And that'll often be the determinant for a lot of issuers in terms of what path they decide to, to follow. Well, as you know, Amrita, we've seen a ton of new ETF launches over the past several years. And it seems like it's just, you know, getting easier over time to launch a fund but it, it's still a pretty involved process from what I understand. Could you talk about maybe the, the timeline of getting a new ETF launch? How long can a prospective issuer expect this is going to take? Yeah, that's a question that we receive all the time. And I guess one way that I love answering that question is to say that as the sub-advisor, Vident is almost never a bottleneck. We find it's often a a timeline that's driven by regulatory consideration. So as you know, um, in order to uh, actually get your fund launch, you need to file, you know, preliminary prospectus, you know, your N1A. Um, and then there's usually a 75-day waiting period, the clock, as we colloquially call it in the ETF industry, to actually get your fund up and running. And in that 75 days that you're waiting for the SEC to either comment on your filing or to or to you know waive the decision or waive the right to comment on your filing, in which case you're you know pretty much good to go. As an issuer, you're very very busy. You are doing a lot of pre-launch calls. You're working with um, your portfolio management team, whether it's internal or external. You're working with your custodian. You're working with your fund admin. You're working with your lead market maker. You might be doing some last-minute tweaks from a from a product development perspective, and just making sure that everybody knows what they need to be doing when the fund actually launches. So a lot of time to spend walking through different workflows, doing some troubleshooting, talking about, okay, well, if this comes up, how would we deal with that situation? And, and just trying to predict um, a lot of the potential hiccups that could occur along the way. And so that 75 days often, often ends up going pretty quickly. So if you start before the 75 days, before you actually do the filing as a prospective issuer, you probably spent a couple of months, at least a month minimum, interviewing and doing your due diligence on your potential partners. And so for us, um, you know, by the time that someone's decided to, to work with us and, and they're getting ready to file, we, we typically see a three-month launch date after that. So I guess from start to finish, I'd say anywhere from four to six months, depending on how efficient you uh, and your partners are. Wow, wow. That's a lot faster than I would imagine. Obviously, I know you're talking to potential ETF issuers every day. Could you maybe get into, you know, what some of the popular or interesting ETF launch requests you're fielding right now? I, I love talking about this because Vinant, we're we're what very fortunate to be one of the firms in the industry that that gets to see the upcoming trends ahead of time because we're often among the partners that are 
first contacted when issuers are thinking about launching their next fund. So, you know, I think back to, you know, multi-factor index, ESG, active, crypto futures. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really neat for us to see, you know, what the, what the next wave is going to be. It usually, usually by the time we've heard it the second or third time, we know, okay, this is it. So for us, um, you know, what, what trends are we seeing now? We're seeing not, and none of this is going to surprise you. I think some uh, continued interest in active strategies. Um, I will say they tend to be less quantitative based and, and more traditional proprietary security selection methodologies. And I think that this is reflective of asset managers pursuing new distribution channels through through an ETF. Um, we're hearing a lot of requests for option overlays and other interesting derivative based strategies that are that are income seeking, which I think we've all just started calling the Jeppy effect at this point. <laughs> Uh, and then at Vinant, we happen to be well connected to the group of issuers that are most aggressively pursuing crypto and crypto future strategies. Um, so not surprisingly, we are having a number of conversations with them um, because, you know, as we all know, and I know you personally have covered, uh, you know, they're they're really navigating a tricky regulatory environment right now. Again, not a big surprise here. Mutual fund, SMA conversions continue to be such a hot topic. You know, can we do it? Should we do it? How do we do it? And that's where I think we uh, we shine because we really, we're happy to play the consultative role. And so those inquiries tend to be across a number of asset classes and it really ends up being tied to the asset class or strategy that that prospective issuer is known for um, within its respective distribution channel. And so because we're fortunate to be one of the firms, you know, that are multi-asset, we can support many different types of strategies across different asset classes. Um, so we get to have a lot of those conversations. So uh, that that is really hot right now. I'm curious to see what that means in the start of 2024. Um, but this this is really what's going to be keeping us busy through Q3 and Q4. That's great. It sounds like Perspective issuers are kind of looking at, you know, what's hot out there right now, covered call ETFs, you talked about crypto, things like that. So I kind of want to zoom out now, um, Amritha, and talk about, you know, what you are seeing out there in the broader ETF industry, what's catching your eye. You know, you talked about ESG, you talked about active, you talked about crypto. Is there anything else that's catching your eye, either in terms of flows or anything else like that? I know we hear about this a lot, but it, it just, it's so true, just actively manage ETFs, right? And how they just appear, you know, to, to continue their traction, right? Continue their push into the overall industry. I mean, just the fact that they've captured such a large percentage of overall ETF flows, you know, compared to just where they were a couple of years ago, right? And I think I think people forget that active ETFs have actually been around for a long time, almost as as some of the first ETFs that launched, if you look at First Trust and other issuers, I mean, they launched active ETFs pretty early on. But the ETF rule, you know, by lowering the barriers of entry and motivating more active managers to come to market, uh, it's really allowed the shape of, of ETF product development to change. Uh, you know, I just had this conversation with a colleague the other day, and only three years ago, for every five prospective issuers I talked to who wanted to launch an index strategy, maybe one was looking to do active. And honestly, that's flipped. 
That is that is absolutely flipped. It has been a while um, since we've launched an index strategy, and 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 I, it's not necessarily commentary on um, you know the benefits or or the virtues of index. It's just it's just a fact um, that that that's that's the trend overall, and I, I just don't see that changing. You know, for our part, we're talking to so many different kinds of institutions, whether it's financial advisors or family offices or or you know, well-known mutual fund complexes. Um, and they're not talking to us about bringing index strategies to market. It, it's it's really active. Um, and for us, you know, for me particularly, I think that's, that's just so exciting. As an ETF community, we take on the important role of education, particularly for financial advisors. And for those of us who've been in the ETF space for, you know, much of our career, um, it's it's gratifying, uh, but it's also not surprising to see that the ETF story continues to resonate, right? And that the benefits of the ETF vehicle are becoming more widely known, you know, low cost, tax efficiency, transparency, uh, but also, you know, just the ability to provide, you know, those specific targeted exposures or access to proprietary strategies that were, you know, previously only available to the largest investors. Um, so it's not surprising to me that active ETFs have become popular. You know, there's no investment minimums. You can buy them on any trading platform. There's no front load uh, or 12B1 fees. Uh, you know, the, the ETF rule, uh, I think, allowed active managers to see that ETFs are not competition, but they're rather just a representative of a due distribution channel for them, a way to access investors that they may not have been able to target before. Yeah, it's been stunning watching the absolute explosion of active ETFs recently. I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on non-transparent active versus transparent active? I know the transparent ones are the ones that are kind of gaining traction, but do you think you know these non-transparent active ETFs are eventually going to see more demand? So I'm probably going to upset some people with my answer. <laughs> I think that non-transparent active is a, a representative of a very interesting innovation in the ETF space, but I, I can't help but feel sometimes that they were an answer to a, a problem that nobody really had. Mm. I think they, they were an interesting innovation that came out and it was, okay, these are available now, you can consider it, but I don't know that anybody at least who was really in the ETF industry at the time was, was asking for them. I, I, I'm, yes, I know ostensibly they, they, you know, they solve the problem of fund running to the extent that that is, is a concern for, for active portfolio managers. But I think there's enough research out there to demonstrate that that's not really um, such a big issue anymore. When you look at these huge index rebalances that take place and how much uh, of an impact that front running has, I'm just not sure that, uh, you know, issuers of, of active strategies, even in the multi-hundred millions of assets, uh, really need to be concerned about front-running. And so for us, you know, as a, as a, as a consultative partner to our clients, um, you know, we're, we, can, we can support any type of strategy. We currently support a Presidian fund, we, you know, a blue tractor. We can certainly do the NYSE model. So we always let we always let issuers know that it's an option if it's important to them, but we really challenge them to uh, answer why it is that they're pursuing that wrapper. Sometimes I can, I'm concerned that it adds um, additional complexity, um, especially in a space that's already very crowded in terms of just the proliferation of, of, of ETFs out there. But also, you know, we all know now that distribution is really the, the key to success in, in the ETF industry. And to the extent that putting a non-transparent wrapper on your fund could impede uh, or at least create some 
issues from a distribution perspective, I, I, I try to encourage people to really consider why they're using it. And, and I will say for, for our part, it's been almost a year um, since anyone's approached us saying that they want to use a, a non-transparent wrapper. So if I'm just going by what we see, um, I'm not I'm not sure that they're necessarily going to make a comeback, but I, I can easily be proven wrong. Right. But it, it does certainly seem like investors also appreciate the transparency that uh, the the transparent ETFs provide. But, you know, like you said, time will tell. Maybe maybe they'll make a comeback in the future. Well, you know, we're going to have to leave it there. Amritha, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. So much great information. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Looking forward to chatting with you again soon. Absolutely. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.